We are continuing this morning in Revelation, and we're almost finished. We've worked our way through the whole book, and we're in the last couple chapters. I showed you a couple weeks ago that an obvious and central point in these last two chapters is that there are obviously only two ultimate destinies for mankind, the new creation or the lake of fire, as Revelation puts it to us. Last week, I showed you that the Bible presents to us a material, physical, new creation, which ought to inform our conception of where we will be for all eternity, i.e. heaven. This week, we will examine how the meta-narrative of the Bible comes to a denouement ending in Revelation. Now, what is a denouement ending, you ask? In simple terms, a denouement ending is an ending of a narrative, perhaps a book or a movie or a play, in which everything wraps up the way you expect it to in a satisfying resolution. There is no cliffhanger at the end. There is no plot twist at the end. There is no tragedy at the end. Everything just wraps up nicely. This is a denouement ending. And everybody lived happily ever after is an example of a denouement ending. Everything's been resolved. Everything's good. Denouement is a French word which is a derivative of the French word meaning to unknot. In other words, to untie a knot. So when things get all tangled up and knotted up, denouement is the untangling of that knot, the untangling of that rope, as it were. That's where the word comes from, literally. So throughout the course of a narrative, everything gets tied up in a knot, and then in a denouement ending, the knot is untied, the rope is untangled, everything is all right, it's back to the way it's supposed to be. This is how the book of Revelation ends. It is a denouement ending. Let me show you this morning two ways in which the final chapters of Revelation form a denouement ending. First, what went wrong is made right. We are not exiled anymore. We read in Genesis, in the beginning, you know what? God created the heavens and the earth. And in that chapter, we read over and over again, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and so on and so forth, until it culminates with, and it was very good. God made a good world, and He placed us in it, His very good world. And God had very reasonable expectations of us for life there in His good world. Love God, our Creator, and love people. Very reasonable, right? What if we lived this way? I think I would say like Louis Armstrong, what a wonderful world. But as our confession of faith says, man did not long abide in this blessedness, but sinned against God, thereby failing to love Him. And selfishly thinking about short-term pleasure, Adam failed to do what was good for everyone else, and thereby failed to love people, the people for whom he was responsible. 
Eve in the first place. He should have crushed that serpent's head then and there. But by extension, all whom he represented. He failed to love God and he failed to love people. Again, as our confession says then, our first parents, by their sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all. So not only were we cursed to die physically, and not only did we become spiritually dead in that instant, but as it pertains to our purposes today, mankind was exiled from the special presence of God there in Eden. And exiled to the east. The doorway, so to speak, that led back into Eden was at the east of the garden. So that one would have to travel westward back into the garden. Genesis 3, 23 and 24 says, The Lord God sent him out, that is Adam, from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man was sent out. Everything got tied up in a knot, so to speak. The rope got tangled. The final chapters of Revelation untie this knot. The final chapters of Revelation see this problem resolved and brought to a denouement ending. Let me show you what I mean. Consider the tree of life. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we read this. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he was not supposed to eat from. And as a result, he was no longer allowed to partake of the tree of life. Genesis 3, 22-24 says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is not even a complete sentence from God. It's like when you're watching a movie and somebody is so emotional that they don't even get the whole sentence out. But the last half of the sentence is implied. You realize it cuts God off halfway through the sentence? God said, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the narrator continues, The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. It's as if God is so emotionally distraught. This is the way it's put to us. Not that God gets emotionally distraught. But this is the way it's put to us that he's saying something so, so powerful and so heartfelt doesn't even finish his sentence. The narrator, the narrator just picks up and says this is why God sent Adam out of the garden. We see in Revelation 22 and verse 2 that there is a river in the middle of the city. 
and on either side of the river, the tree of life. The tree of life was in the garden in the beginning. We were barred from access to it when we were exiled to the east. But we get access to it again in Revelation 22. The knot is untied. The string is untangled. Everything comes back around such that we're allowed to eat from the tree of life again. Implicitly and incidentally, it's obvious from Revelation and the appearance of the tree of life in Revelation and the message of eternal life that God is not concerned that people might eat of the tree of life and live forever in principle when in Genesis 3 he says lest he take of the tree of life and eat and live forever it's not that God is opposed to us having eternal life or opposed to us eating from the tree but only under the right circumstances some theologians hypothesize that the tree of life would have confirmed Adam and Eve in their state of fallenness forever and so God would not let them eat of it in that state but in our glorified state to eat of the tree of life is alright because everything's fixed and we can stay like that forever. So just know in Genesis 3 when God blocks them from the tree of life, He's not being stingy, but they have to get back to the tree of life the right way. And in fact in Revelation 22, they do get back to the tree of life in the right way. This is one way that Revelation gives us a denouement ending. Consider also that Adam and Eve walked and talked with God face to face in the garden. God was in the garden in the beginning in a special way, though we know that technically He is omnipresent, that is, He's present everywhere. He condescended to be present with Adam and Eve in the garden in a special way in which He did not make Himself manifestly present everywhere. We read in Genesis 3a, after they sinned, that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Which implies that it was a familiar sound. And it was a familiar experience that Adam and Eve recognized. Well, God was still a ways off, they heard a sound. And it wasn't a sound they never heard before because they were able to identify the sound. It's God coming to walk with us in the cool of the day, implicitly, as He does regularly with us, as He has before. And so they enjoyed this fellowship. I don't know what that means, walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. What was that like? I don't know. But it was far, it was far more familiar to them than our experience at present is. But in Revelation 22 and verse 4, we read this. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. So when Adam and Eve were barred from the garden, when the cherubim with the flaming sword was set at the east to guard the way back in, Adam and Eve no longer walked with God in the cool of the day. No longer saw Him face to face. We read about Moses later talking with God face to face. We 
read at other times of intimate experiences with God. But it's certainly not the norm that we speak and that we meet with God face to face. But in Revelation 22, it is. And again, we get this face to face communion with God, which Adam and Eve were barred from after their sin. And in this way, another rope gets untangled. And we see a denouement ending. Thirdly, and related, consider that God's very presence was in Eden and was later symbolized by a cube. This might sound like a funny point, but bear with me here. As I just said, God's very presence was in Eden in a way that He was not particularly present outside of Eden. Later on, that place of God's special presence comes to be symbolized by a cube. We're told explicitly that the most holy place in Solomon's temple was a cube. That is, the width and the length and the height of the walls were co-equal. And since the temple was based on the tabernacle, and since the tabernacle was in turn based on the heavenly vision that God gave to Moses at Sinai, it seems safe to assume that the most holy place in the tabernacle was a cube also. Dare I say that the heavenly vision that Moses saw envisioned the most holy place as a cube also. So the tabernacle and temple layouts were based around a cube-shaped room called the most holy place, which is the focal point of the tabernacle, which was the place of God's special dwelling on earth, though He is present everywhere. This most holy place was guarded by cherubim as the very presence of God in Eden and the tree of life was also guarded by a cherubim after the exile. And in the tabernacle and temple system, there was restricted access into the most holy place reserved only for the high priests. And even they themselves are restricted in terms of entering the most holy place. They cannot do so whensoever and howsoever they please. Now, consider the dimensions of the New Jerusalem given to us in Revelation 21 and verse 16. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. As I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago, this would be roughly the distance from here to Nassau, Bahamas, and then west to Mexico City, and then south to Panama City, Panama, and then back east to Barbados again. Walls that long and that high and that wide. It was what this new Jerusalem in Revelation 21 is a huge cube. It is clearly the focal point of the new creation. It's, a, it's not like some backwater little village somewhere and like the main thing is going on somewhere else. This is clearly the focal point. This is the place of God's special presence. It's presented to us as the, sort of the center of activity and commerce as well as the center of worship. It is clearly the focal point. It's central irrespective of the rest of the geography of the new earth as it were. Its function is central to the new earth 
the way that the function of the most holy place was central to the tabernacle, even though it was on the westernmost side. At its gate, at its gates are, guess what? Angels. Revelation 21 and verse 12. And so as God's special presence in Eden, after the exile, when Adam and Eve were sent out, as the way back in was entering towards the west, there was an angel there at the gate, barring access to not only the tree of life, but this place of God's special presence. So, in the tabernacle, traveling westward, there was a curtain with what on it? Angels. Cherubim. Guarding the way into this most holy place. Right? The question... that Adam and Eve surely would have had to ask. Let me, save, let me save that for a few minutes. Let me leave it there for now. Let me leave it there for now. What I'm trying to show you is that in Revelation we get a cube, which was the same shape as the most holy place in the tabernacle and the temple, and which corresponds thematically also to the very presence of God in Eden. All right? In Revelation, what we see is that we are all granted the access of high priests to return back into the presence of God, to go in where God is. And in this way, another string is untangled. Another knot is untied. And we see a denouement ending. Adam and Eve are sent out of the very special presence of God. Revelation 21 and 22, they're back in it. So the ending of Revelation is a denouement in that it sees what is wrong made right. We're not exiled anymore, but we're welcome to eat of the tree of life and to see God face to face in a most holy place of sorts. That's the first way that the ending of Revelation is a denouement ending. Now here's, here's the other way. What should have been fulfilled in the first place what should have been, what should have occurred in the first place is actually brought to pass at the end of Revelation. Particularly in this respect, what theologians have called the creation mandate or the dominion mandate is fulfilled. Consider that in the beginning, God created light, order, and life. Remember Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form. There was no shape to it. Right? It was void. There was no life in it. And darkness was over the face of the deep. There was no light in it. But God said, and God said, and God said. And what He brings forth is giving form or order to the formless, filling the void, and putting light into the darkness. God brings forth light, order, and life. Then God commands Adam and Eve to bring, essentially, further light, order, and life into this world. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This implies that they are to train dogs and tame horses 
and plant seeds and figure out agriculture and learn how to make tools and organize stuff. Eventually, they're going to have to even organize human civilizations and so on and so forth. There is potentiality built into the world that God had made. So God brings light, order, and life, and then essentially says to Adam and Eve that creation is not yet at the point that I want it to be at, and your job is to get it there, to further bring light, order, and life to this world. I preached a whole sermon on this back in 2017 in Genesis. You can go listen to it if you like. But you should see that there is potentiality built into creation, which... Adam and Eve, and by extension the whole human race, were to develop. Genesis 2 and verse 5 is fascinating. It says this, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, why not? For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Apparently, there were at least some types of vegetation that wouldn't just naturally happen to spring up and that they would have to be cultivated. Now, I don't have a green thumb at all. Like, I can't even name, I can't even name one plant out there. But listen here, I know enough to know that if there's just a plot of land left to itself, it's not all of a sudden going to be a nicely organized garden. And I know that certain things are not going to naturally spring up without proper care and tending. Certain things thrive wild and other things need to be cultivated. This seems to be latent and implicit that there was a certain lack of growth in the very beginning because there was no man yet. Implying that when the man comes, he's going to bring out more of the potentiality of the earth. Alright, so God created light, order, and life, then commanded Adam and Eve to bring further light, order, and life. But Adam does not bring this dominion mandate to fulfillment. In fact, quite the opposite. He sins. And there is a fascinating verse in Jeremiah chapter 4, where the effect of sin in Judah is said to be thus. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. What that tells me, and what that should tell us, is that the effect of sin is actually not that we make God's creation better and develop it by bringing further light, order, and life to this world, but actually that our sin causes regression. That it essentially uncreates. That it actually moves creation backwards into a formless void full of only darkness. So Adam doesn't bring further light, order, and life. Rather, he pushes creation back more towards the darkness. Back towards the formlessness. Back towards the void. Following after him. Mankind does not bring the dominion mandate to fulfillment. But continually, throughout history, bring more, more so, or more often, or at least very often, 
Probably should have clarified that in my mind before I said it. Our sin, certainly at least a lot of the time, pushes things back towards void. Back towards formlessness. Back towards disorder. None of us properly bring the dominion mandate to its fulfillment, nor does any group of us do so. More on that in a moment. Yet look at Revelation 21. Not only are the effects of the curse undone, after all, no more crying, right? No more pain. No more death. But also, the progression of the storyline of Scripture is from a garden to a city. And a beautiful one of that. Signifying that the earth is actually more orderly and subdued in the end than in the beginning. This is not to say that God does not love the natural world. Obviously, as I belabored the point last week, the material is, is part and parcel of God's redemptive activity. And God, God's the one who created the mountains and the lakes and the animals and so on and so forth. God's not trying to eradicate those. But there is a sense in which city building, organizing, ordering, making things efficient and accessible, being off the grid is all in vogue these days. But listen, there's something nice about just flushing your toilet, right? Or going and opening the fridge and pulling something out. Off the grid is a lot of hard work, which is nothing wrong with hard work. Nothing wrong with being off the grid either. But there is a blessing to be found in cities when they are good cities that are well organized, efficiently run, and where justice and so on and so forth prevail. This is the picture and the motif that we see going from a garden to a city. We see development and dominion to the point where this city is a place of ultimate blessedness. Even the streets are gold. Even the tools that are used to measure in the city are gold. Go back and find that detail yourself in the, in the chapter. Everything is just bedecked with jewels of all various sorts. And this is, this is showing to us that not only have the effects of the fall been undone, but actually the original creation purpose of dominion has been fulfilled. And so in this way, again, we have a denouement ending. Adam failed, and everything got tangled up in knots. But now at the end of Revelation 21, God's original purpose for mankind is fulfilled, and that dominion has been accomplished. So Revelation 21 and 22 gives us a satisfying resolution to all the knots that were tangled up throughout the foregoing 66 books. Now, here's where the glory should go for this denouement ending. Can you guess? It's all because of Jesus. It's all because of Jesus. Jesus accomplishes the repair we need. When we were exiled from Eden, a question arises from the depths of the human heart. We find ourselves desperate for an answer to this all-important question. Can we ever return westward back into the presence of God? Where we see Him face to face. And where we will eat from the tree of life. But at that juncture of the developing storyline of Scripture, an angel with the flaming sword placed at the gates 
to guard the way seems to be a pretty firm no. At that juncture of the developing storyline of Scripture, it seems impossible that mankind could ever return westward back into the presence of God after having been exiled east of Eden. The institution of the tabernacle and temple system is a hopeful development from Adam and Eve's banishment east of Eden, with an angel guarding the way back in. However, we know that the ceremonies associated with this Old Testament system were merely symbolic of spiritual truths. As it says in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the sacrifices that were offered there in the tabernacle didn't actually take away sin, but they symbolized and taught us that a sacrifice is necessary to take away sin. Likewise, the re-entrance to the most holy place or pardon me, the, the entrance to the most holy place was not the ultimate re-entrance to God's presence that God ever intended to give us. So when the high priest traveled westward into the most holy place, it evoked feelings of returning westward to Eden. And it's drawing on that motif of returning westward to Eden. And yet it was not the ultimate return westward back into the presence of God that mankind would ever experience. However, when Jesus dies in Mark 15.38, the curtain covered with cherubim, blocking off access to the most holy place, is torn in two, symbolizing that we can all come in now. And Revelation 21 and 22 presents us with the fulfillment of that most holy place symbol. We literally live with God in Revelation 21 and 22 and see Him face to face again as in Eden and eat from the tree of life all because of Jesus. He grants us that all that access and fixes everything that needed to be fixed and repairs and unties all those knots in the storyline. It's because of Jesus and the atonement He made at the cross that Revelation 21 and 22 comes to a satisfying denouement ending. It's Jesus who accomplishes the repair that was necessary and untangles all those knots in the storyline. Likewise, it is Jesus who brings the dominion mandate to fulfillment. Notice that it is not a gradual accomplishment of what is pictured in Revelation 21 and 22. It doesn't happen slowly over time that there's a large construction project and the people of God labor diligently to pave these streets of gold and get the the cranes and stuff and hang the jewels and so on and so forth and it happens over time That's that's not the imagery that's used that's not the way that it's presented to us rather what is pictured in Revelation is all tied to cataclysmic definitive actions of God surrounding the return of Christ so while the church ought to And in fact, even those outside the church, because they're humans, ought to work towards further light, order, and life. That is something we ought to do as humans. We also have to recognize that though we try sincerely to do that, we do it imperfectly. 
And therefore, we cannot bring to fulfillment the dominion mandate of Genesis chapter 1. To subdue the earth. To just subdue disease. Just subdue natural cancer. Or, not natural cancer, I still have disease in my mind. To subdue all disease. To subdue natural disasters, the natural world. To bring the cosmos back into order to fix all the relational stuff and just end war and bring everything to this sort of subjugation that God envisioned. We can't do that. So that doesn't relieve us of our duty to work towards that and bring further light, order, and life. But we also have to be realistic that we are not going to get everything to streets of gold. We are not going to get everything to a bedecked with jewels city. We are not going to get everything to no more crying, no more pain, no more death. It's Jesus who fixes everything, and it's Jesus who brings the original mandate that was given to Adam to its consummate fulfillment. The light, order, and life that we might bring to this world throughout the course of our lifetimes may be significant. Let me also say this, and just put in a good word for insignificance. It may not. And you may, just, you may work hard as a man or a woman doing ordinary things that are insignificant to the broader world, but you're bringing light, order, and life in your little sphere. You wash the dishes and you're bringing light, order, and life. You show up to your job and you're, you're bringing light, order, and life. You teach your kids not only the things of God, but even just how to read, stuff like that. You're bringing light, order, and life. The light, order, and life that you might bring to this world may be relatively insignificant in the grand scheme of things, but it's still the right thing to do, the right way to live. And though it might be insignificant to the world as a whole, it's not insignificant to the people in your lives. So let me just put in a good word for that. But let me also say this. The light, order, and life that we might bring to this world throughout the course of our lives may be significant even on a grander scale. It might affect nations and civilizations. <clears throat> Consider someone like Solomon, of whose reign it was said, and we providentially read it last week in 1 Kings chapter 4. And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, which was idiomatic of the whole country, the way we may say from animal flower cave to oysters. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Because of Solomon's work bringing light, order, and life, there was blessedness in Israel from Dan to Beersheba. It is possible for people to do very good work in pockets of time and places such that nations are blessed. From Animal Flower Cave to Oysters, there's great blessedness and prosperity and things are good in Barbados because of what you do. So in saying we're not going to do it perfectly, I'm also not trying to discourage you from, as William Carey said, attempting great things for God while expecting great things from God. It was so good under Solomon in fact, that Micah draws on this language from 1 Kings 4 
in Micah chapter 4 and verse 4 to describe the reign of the Messiah. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. That's a direct allusion back to Solomon's reign. It's telling us that the reign of the Messiah is going to be very much like Solomon's reign. So Solomon's reign was good. And likewise, we also might bring and ought to try to bring as much light, order, and life as we can to our spheres of influence. And it might be relatively insignificant in the world's eyes or it may be significant in the world's eyes. But, but here's the broader point of this section. It is only Jesus who will bring everything to the levels, the degrees of light, order, and life that God envisioned for mankind to do when He gave the command back in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. And Jesus brings us there to those levels, to that degree of light, order, and life in Revelation 21 and 22. It is only Jesus who will perfectly and ultimately fulfill the dominion mandate. And it is only Jesus who will turn a garden into a city with streets of gold. When Jesus returns, we will all say of Him, as He said of Himself during the course of His earthly life, someone greater than Solomon is here. And indeed, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Don't you have knots in the strings and the ropes of your own lives? Don't you watch the news and realize that there are knots and strings in this world? Don't you have friends and family members and neighbors and co-workers whose strings are all tangled up? Whose ropes are all tangled up? Don't you long for those things to be untangled? Wouldn't you love a denouement ending in which everything is unknotted? sometimes end tragically. Our lives sometimes end with a plot twist. Our lives sometimes end not with a denouement. But look at Revelation 21 and 22 and note well that ultimately everything does. You realize they could throw us to the lions like they did in the first century. Right? They could march us to a beach and cut off our heads as they did just a few years ago. Some of our brethren. You realize that you could get cancer and die prematurely. You realize that in the microcosm of your life, the here and now, things don't always come to a denouement ending. The error of the prosperity gospel preachers is that they tell you, trust in Jesus and your life now will have a denouement ending. Everything's going to get wrapped up the way you think it should. Everything's going to get resolved the way that you think it should. 
And you're not going to be sick, you're not going to be crying, you're not going to be mourning, you're not going to be in pain anymore. The former things shall have passed away, and behold, everything shall be new in your life today. When you trust in Jesus, everything is going to be fixed, and basically for the rest of your life, now you're going to be walking on streets of gold. That's nonsense. Because that's not the way that our lives are guaranteed to go. Whether or not we trust in Jesus. But listen here. Don't make the, the opposite mistake of rejecting the prayer prosperity gospel so hard that you swing to the other end of the pendulum and forget that everything is actually getting there for God's people. And that one day you actually aren't going to be sick anymore. One day you're not going to be hurting anymore. One day you're not going to have relational conflicts anymore. One day you're not going to be behind on your bills anymore. There's going to be a certain prosperity. Every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Even the streets are going to be made with gold. You think you're going to go broke in heaven? <laughs> right? Listen here. The prosperity gospel mistakes what is coming ultimately for what God has never promised us in the here and now. But be encouraged as you look around at the knots in the strings of your life, the ropes of your life and the knots and strings of our country and the world that we live in. Be encouraged that even if those knots are not untied in the next five years, or 20 years, or 50 years, or 100 years, be encouraged that every one of those knots gets untied in the end. Jesus fixes what is broken, and He brings everything to its original creation purpose. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus to repair this world, and bring it to its intended creation purposes. To forgive your sins. And to make your relationship right with God again. Won't you trust in Him today? Why would you reject this good news? Yes, the Christian life involves submitting to the reign of King Jesus. But living under a good king is a blessing. Not a restriction on happiness. Like it was with Solomon, so shall it be to a greater degree. Everyone lived in peace and safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. It's good when there's a good king. Anarchy isn't better. Everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Just go compare the reign of Solomon with judges. You're going to see that. If you are already in Christ, be encouraged that everything is going to come to a denouement ending ultimately speaking because of our Jesus the knots in your life and in the whole world will eventually be untied 